the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And on today's edition, we're going to be talking about, or we're going to be putting, I should say, serial killers on the couch along with the psychologist who treated them. <laughs> I, I don't know if my guest, Dr. Von der Pelto, realized that she herself was going to be going on the couch today, but <laughs> <laughs> I think if she's handled serial killers, she can handle this. Um, <laughs> my guest, Dr. Von der Pelto, is the author of a new book that's just come out, and uh, is getting very excited reactions. It's called Without Remorse, The Story of the Woman Who Kept the L.A. Serial Killers Alive. And today we um, are going to hear about how it is, first of all, that she got to be the person who um, uh, went to work every day in an office that was uh, open um, on the floor of serial killers. I mean, where serial killers lived as well, sharing a sharing a space with serial killers and, and as well as trying to be their therapist. So welcome to the show, Dr. Pelto. Uh-huh. Thank you. Um, let's see. Let's, let's start with <laughs> what, what made you decide to become a psychologist, and when you were deciding this, did you ever imagine yourself treating serial killers? Well, well, I'll answer the second part first, and then I'll go to the other part. Okay. No, I never in my wildest dreams ever thought I would be working with serial killers. But the, the answer to the other part of the question, when I was 11 years old, my sixth grade um, school teacher gave me a book on psychology. It was his introduction to psych textbook, and even though I couldn't understand all of it because I was only 11, I loved the idea. So I decided that when I grew up, I was going to be a psychologist. Now, I grew up in Needles, California, 4,500 people. My dad was a railroad engineer who dropped uh, grade school in uh, fourth grade. Hmm. My mother got a seventh grade education. They married when she was 15 and had a baby when she was 16. So when I announced proudly at 11 that I was going to be a psychologist, Mm -hmm. everybody thought that was, you know, a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Instead, I went ahead and married at 18, and we moved to Long Beach where I put my husband through school. Um, When I was about, I guess, 28, I decided to go to school. My husband thought it was a joke. He thought I was much too um, bubble-headed. I was kind of a blonde redhead, you know, and so he thought, Vonda, you know, you're, um, this this isn't going to fly. But I talked him into letting me take a couple of classes at City College, Long Beach City, and um, 
I was quite intimidated at first by school, but then I kind of settled in and it was okay. I divorced him when I was, uh, see, about uh, 30 or so, and then later went to work as a waitress and finished my Ph.D. 13 years later. Wow. So you might say, Carol, that I was a late bloomer. <laughs> it uh, took okay. me a long time. Well, you were you could say that, but yeah. you could also say that you really persevered. Yeah. Um, so at what point, because I know you didn't have your Ph.D. yet when you got this job at the L.A. County Jail, at what point, how did that come about? Well, I had been working. I finally got my master's degree, and then I went to work for Orange County Mental Health and worked with uh, flashers and weenie waggers and <laughs> rapists and... Uh, child molesters, and I did that for seven years while I was still working on the Ph.D. When I actually finished it, I needed internship hours, and so with just the wet, behind-the-ears Ph.D., I went to L.A. County Mental Health and told them that I had worked with all of these uh, molesters, all of this other type of um, criminals, and that I would like to work with a different type of population of criminal. But but had you asked in the first place to work with the criminals in Orange County? Was no that area. They just that's just where they had. That's just where they put you. Right. I I had worked. Um, I just when I finished the masters, I just applied to Orange County Mental Health, and that's when I worked in children's services and saw the molesters and the rapists. But, I mean, they, it was just that's where they had a spot for you, and you just kind of uh, kept going on in that. I mean, obviously that interested you to some degree. Right, it did. So when I did actually finish the Ph.D., the thing that happened with Orange County was that they were not willing to let any of the psychologists uh, oversee my uh, licensing hours, my 1,500 hours. They said, no, they budget cutbacks, and so they couldn't spare a psychologist to supervise me. <clears throat> so I was in the bind, so that's why I went to L.A. County. Uh-huh. And tight, things were really tight back then, and not many positions open. So when I told them that I'd like to work in the jail to see a different criminal population, they said, sure. <laughs> yep. Of course, at that point, I had absolutely no idea what I would be doing. Uh-huh. So I, uh, Vernon Butts, one of the freeway killers, had committed suicide in the jail, and he was the one who was going to testify against Bill Bonin. And they, the criminal justice system particularly wanted Bonin. So when Butts killed himself, the attorney general was very, very angry. Uh, mental health, they have a very small mental health unit in the jail. They were uh, highly criticized and embarrassed. And, of course, the sheriff and the deputies were all really criticized, too. So when I said, well, I'm interested in doing this, they created an actual position for me. They'd never had anyone do this before. 
So I, when I went into the jail, that's when I found out what I would actually be doing. And that was to simply see anybody whose name appeared in the newspaper or on the radio or TV that was considered high, um, high profile would be my patient. Or um, I don't know if I should even say patient because I didn't do any treatment actually. Um, I simply was there as kind of a sophisticated friend, maybe, is what you'd say since I was a psychologist. And my job was simply to meet with these men anytime they wanted to, to make sure that they weren't suicidal. Well, okay, but they wouldn't have just put in, you know, I don't know, the head of the local PTA. I mean, they were counting on your right. knowledge of, of psychology. Exactly. To be able to... Um, to uh, Assess them. Assess them and yeah. to uh, see when they, you know, needed to be on, on suicide watch and so on to prevent this from happening again. Right. Um but at the same time, I guess what you mean, though, is that you weren't exactly doing analysis with them either. Right, not at all. I mean, did you get into things like their childhood? And I mean, did you pro? I, I know that they, and we'll we'll talk about some of these uh, interesting characters. Uh huh. But um, did other than what they would tell you, you know, offer you, did you probe for um, information about? how they got along with their parents and siblings and what life was like when they were kids and so on? No, I really didn't. Um, if they brought it up, I would show interest in it, but I did not probe at all. Um, see, there was the, the situation was that there was no confidentiality in the jail. Mm. Um, my office was on the second floor, um, in the facility, downtown L.A., Vignes and Boucher. By the way, it's the largest jail system in the world, mm. uh, L.A. County. And I had my office was a converted cell, and with the only difference being that they had removed the solid door and put in a Dutch door so that half of it could be closed and the other half open. Mm-hmm. So with that situation, there was no privacy. And oftentimes the deputies would just come by and they'd stand outside the door and listen because they were curious about these guys too. So if if the uh, inmate offered something about childhood, uh, then we'd talk about it. And I always warned them that there would be no confidentiality and not to tell me anything that they ne- needed kept secret. Hmm. Which is, you know, of course, that's the antithesis of therapy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's hard to do um, something therapeutic without without revealing, having the patient reveal all these secrets. Right. So, so tell us how. Tell us, you know, walk us through it literally. When you came to work the first day, what was that like? I was horrified. I just, I I had never, ever been in a, any kind of a jail before. And when I walked in, you, you have to go in through a sally port. And I didn't even know what a sally port was, actually, at that point. Yes, why don't you describe it? You walk in, um, and they open a, a gate of bars, 
and then you walk into this small area, which is probably about oh, five foot by four foot. And then there's a huge plate glass window, and you look into that, and that's where the deputies are, and you exchange your badge for a visitor's badge. When you, after you step into this, they clang the steel bar gate behind you. I, it's, well, it's like kind of in the movies. It scares the living daylights out of you. And then on the other side is another locked gate. Well, I stepped into that thing and then had to wait for the deputies to open it, the other side. Yes, at their mercy. Exactly. <laughs> because otherwise you are locked in jail. You in betcha. That, <laughs> in that uh, little enclosed cell. That's what it felt like. Doors. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, when we uh, come back, we'll continue on the journey of my guest, Dr. Vonda Pelto. She is the author of the new book, Without Remorse, the story of the woman who kept the L.A. serial killers alive. And the um, interesting twist to this is, whether uh, who it is who is without remorse. <laughs> so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. <laughs> Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com Had an accident? The people you may encounter may be attorneys, doctors, and insurance agents. How do you protect yourself and your family? Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff, an experienced trial attorney and former legislator. Attorney Woodruff and his expert guests assist and inform on what to do in a crisis, what steps to take, what to avoid, and most important, what you need to know to get through the process. Meeting by Accident broadcasts every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Because being informed makes all the difference. Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST for 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking about serial killers on the couch with the psychologist who treated them. And today's guest, Dr. Vonda Pelto, is the author of the new book, Without Remorse, the story of the woman who kept the L.A. serial killers alive. And she has just begun to take us on this journey and um, of what it was like... <laughs> Finding out what your job description is, <laughs> walking into the L.A. County Jail. So let's go from there. I have to tell you, Dr. Carroll, when I walked, um, once I got through the Sally Port and I was being escorted by a deputy um, up to the second floor where my office was located, as I walked down the aisle, um, the hallway there, they were just herding in a long a line of inmates with their ankles shackled to each other. <clears throat> and one of them yelled out, Hey, hey guys, fresh pussy on the floor. <laughs> and I thought, Oh my God, you know, what kind of place is this? I walked on a little further down and this great big black man said, Hey, hey, you want to fuck, baby? <laughs> now, when I grew up, my uh, parents were Southern Baptists, and I was raised that way. I didn't even say darn or geez, because that was like saying God or damn. And so then to be being, you know, molested kind of verbally by these guys. So by the time I got up to the my office or up to the room to see my, my new boss, Ron, I was really shaken, and I just... I I had some real doubts as to whether I'd made a good decision. Yes. We the deputy, really a neat guy, uh, walked me down to the forensic unit, and there was right across from the uh, elevator where we got off. There were four payphones that the inmates used. And these inmates, because it was on the second floor and the only access was the elevator, these high-profile killers were allowed to just be out of their cells much of the day walking up and down the halls. And when we, when I stepped off the elevator, there was a good-looking man on one of the telephones. And I, I said to the deputy, hey, you know, who's that? Because I, I thought that, you know, surely all of the inmates were going to be horrid looking. We all, you know how we all have this stereotype? Yes. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> you know, that, that, stere that is just a stereotype. It's just in the movies. It's not true. So anyway, he said, oh, well, that's Ken Bianchi, the Hellside Strangler. And I said, oh, 
And then he proceeded to tell me how Ken Bianchi and his cousin Angelo Bono had picked up this woman, uh, had taken them, taken her to uh, Bono's upholstery shop, where they raped her repeatedly, and then they shot Windex into her, God. just to see how how she would respond to that. And and after the deputy told me this horrible story of torturing and murdering this woman, I thought to myself, Vonda, you would have dated him. Because mm-hmm. I was single at the time, and I was out dating. I was, you know, in my 30s and lonely and horny, as most mm-hmm. young girls are at that point. And I thought... I'm a I'm a new psychologist, and I'm not even smart enough to to pick these guys out. Mm-hmm. I would never have known, never. <clears throat> then my my first uh, actual inmate that I saw for any kind of time was L.A. Comanchero. He was one of the trash bag murderers, and once I got settled into my little office, which was a converted cell with this Dutch door, so half of the door was open and half was closed, um, Ellie Comanchero was escorted into my office, and I thought, now surely they're going to shackle him down. Mm-hmm. All they did was put on a handcuff and cuffed one wrist to this chair. And I thought... My in my little office, my back was to the wall, and Comanchero was between me and the hallway. Mm-hmm. And I, I was terrified. I just I didn't know if this man was going to attack me or not. So I explained to him who I was, and we did the the formal intake interview that every every inmate has had done on them, and then. I said, well, um, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Or if not, you know, we're through. And he said, well, I've just got to get this off my chest. And at that point, he launched in to telling me exactly what had happened. Told me about um, that he was directed to take this husband and wife to the Bonaventure Hotel and then Avatol. One of the other trash bag murders was there waiting for L.A. to bring these this couple to the hotel. When the couple walked in, um, Avatol immediately killed both of them, shot both of them. Ellie said to me, I didn't know he was going to do that. I thought he was just going to talk to them about, he, he suspected they were stealing money from him. Hmm. And so he thought, that's all they were going to do was talk about this. Ellie was totally shocked. Then after Avatol shot the two people, he raped the woman. And Ellie said that he just stood there and that he felt so sorry for this woman as she was dying, saying, what's going to happen to my children? But Ellie said, I couldn't do anything because... Avatar was freebasing and he was crazy. Mm. And he thought that for sure, if he said one word, he'd be attacked. Yes. 
so I listened to Ellie's whole story after having warned him not to tell me anything that had to be held in confidence, and he said it didn't matter. He had confessed everything anyway. Um, but I, I thought this man was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. So I decided, after, well, in the middle of the interview, I was so sick at my stomach that I excused myself. I went across the hall to the forensic unit and went in the bathroom and threw up because he had described in detail how Avital had chopped up the bodies with the blood and the bones and the noise and the smells. Mm. And I thought... I can't handle this job. I'm I'm way over my head. Mm-hmm. Well, after Ellie left, I went to my boss and said, I think that I should talk to the um, attorney general or the defense attorney, somebody, because I really think Ellie's innocent. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. My supervisor laughed and said, Vonda, Get real. <laughs> They're all going to tell you they're innocent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I was, that was, I'd been in the jail about a week at that time. But I really bought it. I thought, poor dude. Later on, Carol, we had this horrible joke about the trash bag murderers. They, after the bodies were chopped up, they put them in hefty bags, put them in suitcases, and took the body parts and strew them all around L.A. County. Mm. So uh, we had this joke that the hefty bag people were going to come to come and ch- to Ellie and ask him for a recommendation <laughs> <laughs> for his their bags. <laughs> yes, but they really are strong. <laughs> <laughs> when you work in that kind of environment, you get a very sick kind of sense of humor. You know, it, everything. Yes, it's a way of surviving. Exactly. Well, now, of course, I guess, with t- how long were you there altogether? Um, just a little over three years. And I guess as time went on um, and more people tried to tell you that they were innocent, you know, with their various stories, you <laughs> came to realize that that it wasn't just this one isolated case, but that many of them try to convince other people that, that they are innocent. Exactly. Exactly. And they can do it so incredibly well. It's the same sociopathic ability uh, to tell people that they're innocent that allows them to, that allowed them to get into um, circumstances where they could murder these people or kidnap these people in the first place. Exactly. <clears throat> they, you know, these, these sociopaths are, make great salesmen. Yeah. Because they can lie and say anything they need to say to you and manipulate you uh, in any way, every way, to get you to buy their product or do whatever they need for you to do. Well, now, one thing, though, you said that he, they, they um, did handcuff him to the chair, but why did they do that when all these other serial killers were just walking around the floor and, and could come into your office at any time or at least come through the window, you know, lean over through the window? Yeah. The, well, he was the first one I saw, and the deputy asked me, do you want me to cuff him? I see. And this was before he actually came into my office. I see. So this was the first formal one that you saw. The exactly. others were just roaming around. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It's kind of like being in the lion's den. <laughs> I did feel like Daniel. Yes. Well, when we come back, we'll hear more um, about from my guest, Dr. Vonda Pelto. Again, the author of Without Remorse, the story of the woman who kept the L.A. serial killers alive. We'll hear more about her, her uh, job, and her personal life and how this affected her. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guest, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, along with my guest, Dr. Vonda Pelto, who um, wrote the book that just came out recently called Without Remorse, The Story of the Woman Who Kept the L.A. Serial Killers Alive. And um, before the break, she was taking us along her journey as she was getting acclimated to her job as the psychologist to serial killers. Um, 
And as you're telling us some more anecdotes, um, I'd like to know, because I know that this had a profound impact upon your personal life, um, going, you know, having uh, tea with, with these serial killers and having to um, listen to what they said, uh, having to interact with them, I guess having to have your guard up all the time, um, how that impacted the rest of your life. Well, I think one of the things that happened um, the first night that I went home from the jail, <clears throat> I began to have nightmares. And I I remember my first nightmare. I dreamt that Ken Bianchi was chasing me, uh, the Hillside Strangler, and that he was choking me, and that the rest of the staff was just kind of standing back and laughing at me. Hmm. The rest of the staff didn't want a psychologist to be hired. Hmm. They wanted another psych tech or another nurse to be hired because I didn't see the general population at that time, and they wanted more help. Mm. And so I think that was certainly the reason that I saw them laughing at me. I woke up in a cold sweat and found that my cat, Pie Wacket, had been laying across my neck. Mm. And that's why I felt like I was suffocating in my dream. Uh-huh. But I, I, you know, gave the thing to Ken Bianchi, um, and I, as time went on, I became hard and cold, and I didn't feel like I fit in with groups anymore. I, having not cussed my entire life, and not really, I didn't drink alcohol either. My parents were teetotalers, and all of a sudden, I was in this horrible situation, and I began to drink more in the evenings. I dreaded going to sleep most of the time because the horrible nightmares would come back. And actually, it took me 15 years before I could write the book because any time I would try to write it again, the nightmares would come back. Uh, I, I became... Um, um, I, I would short-tempered, and I remember one evening I drove home, and I'd worked late that night, and it had been raining, and when I got home, my daughter's car was parked in the driveway, which didn't allow me to get into the garage. I went in, and she was sitting on the couch watching TV, drinking a Coke, and I just totally lost it. I began to scream at her, and I said, you fucking bitch, you parked in my parking place. Now, that was never my style before. And now then, being called, for a while, uh, Dr. Carroll, I thought my middle name was bitch and my first name was fucking because I got called that so often. But I would never have thought to talk to my children that way. And now it was becoming so commonplace, mm. and the words were just um, kind of sound waves in the air. Mm-hmm. They they didn't have the impact on me that they certainly had had at younger ages. And I was, I think I was angry because I I didn't have any real support. Mm-hmm. I was single, uh, dating. I actually I went through three husbands. Um, I couldn't really deal with men very well. 
Mm-hmm. Took a long time. Um, and I, you know, coming back to writing the book, I think the only reason I have finally been successful or was finally successful <clears throat> is my fourth husband has been so extremely supportive of me. And without his support, I could never have gotten this book written. Hmm. Very loving, kind man. And so, well, what was your relationship like with men during the time that you were working at the prison? I was sport-fucking. I I slept with five different men in five different nights. I I guess I objectified men. Hmm. They... They were just objects to me, and I, I don't, I think I was very needy and dependent on them, and yet I didn't like them or trust them. It, it seems like you were doing to them, you were angry at them, and you were doing to them what you felt um, the prisoners were doing to you, the inmates. Exactly. I really think I was. I was a, a strange backlash. Yeah, and I... I drank, I was promiscuous. Um, At one point, I even tried prostitution. I had been dating a very wealthy man who was uh, married, and that didn't matter to me either at that time. I I really did not like myself. I had become something totally unexpected. Hmm. And he would always take me out to dinner to very, very expensive places. And he suggested one night, hey, why don't we, instead of going out to an expensive dinner, you just come to the motel and I will pay you whatever I would have, you know, I I would just pay you instead of dinner out. And so I said, okay. So I dressed that night and I remembered I dressed like a prostitute. I high heels and lots of makeup and hair all teased. And I looked in the mirror and realized that I was, I didn't hardly recognize myself anymore. Mm-hmm. I had changed so much. Living in this seamy kind of life every day around killers and around, you know, uh, rapists and um, all the horrible stuff, I, I had also downgraded myself apparently anyway i got to the motel and he was more demanding than he'd ever been it wasn't love making anymore hmm. he treated me differently and finally i was so ashamed of myself and sick sick that i would do that i left and when he paid me he paid me 25 dollars and i thought my god i'm not even a first class hooker Wow. It was, and then he wanted to get together again. I never did. Mm-hmm. Later on, he suggested, actually. Now, you know, he, he looked at me like a slut, obviously. He suggested that he and his wife and I get together. Mm-hmm. And thank God I hadn't sunk that low. Mm-hmm. But I said, uh-uh. In, in the jail, um, you know, being called a fucking bitch is no big deal. Because it's kind of how people talk. Right. And I can certainly understand why police typically just stick with their own. Because when you're exposed to such horrendous things, 
uh, it's very hard to be sitting in the PTA and not say, holy <laughs> shit, you know, what are you bitches doing now? And, 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 you know, even though that's what you think, well, I was starting to do that. So <laughs> I had to get my butt out of there quick. <laughs> well, now, how did you protect yourself during all this time? I mean, did anyone, did it, during all that, what, three and a half years, didn't any of these um, killers or rapists try to kill or rape you? No. The thing that did happen, though, um, I got a new boss, which was a social worker. The psychologist quit. And when he came in, he would not allow me to see the high profiles anymore. Instead, he said that I was going to walk the row in the ding tanks like all of the other psych techs and nurses. Hmm. The ding tanks are the modules where they keep the people who have um, mental illness. And one day I was out there, like one of my first or second days out there, and I was walking the row, and it was horribly noisy in there. The One of the inmates was sitting on the floor, and grabbed my skirt and I had to lean down to hear him because he was talking so low and I had to do the interview with him in the cell Mm -hmm. through the bars. He grabbed my skirt, pulled it in, and then started rubbing pudding up and down my legs. Mm. And pudding is urine and feces. Mm. And I just began to scream. I just, I, I, you know, I was up on the second tier and the um, gal I was working with, uh, one of the psych techs, came running, and so did the deputies. I, I got out of there, and I thought, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to go crazy. Luckily for me, actually, I was, I had almost, I'd completed all of my hours that I needed to complete, and I fell getting into the elevator and twisted my knee. And so then I had to go out on sick leave for several weeks and have knee surgery. And so I was rescued, in essence, from the jail for about three months. Hmm. And kind of tried to recoup again. But I hadn't, at that point, finished my... um, I had not passed my state board yet. And so I had to work in the jail until because I couldn't get a job outside until I passed yeah. the boards. And during the time in the jail I had taken them and flunked and so I you was You had taken them and and flunked them, did you say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so until I could actually pass the state boards I couldn't get a, a license right. and go into my private practice. Mm-hmm. Which is was my ultimate goal. And so, luckily, during this time that I was off, I was able to study and take the boards and pass them. Uh-huh. <laughs> but then, you know, there's always a glitch, it seems. Right. I needed three months to finish retirement. So I didn't want to, after suffering through all that, I didn't want to let my retirement go. So I went back to the jail. For three more months. Right. Huh. Well, boy, it's, uh, well, okay. Well, you know, that's amazing, though, that that happened 
when you were in this other part of the jail where the the prisoner was behind bars and yet mm-hmm. nothing happened while you were walking the halls with, with them the... while you were just you know while you were casually strolling in the the hallways right where they right. were all around you and could have done something i'm sure people are wondering why that is so maybe we when you come back you can explain that why you think that they didn't uh do anything to uh-huh. attack you when they could have so easily in the, okay the high profile criminals all right well we need to take another break Again, my guest is Dr. Vonda Pelto. The book is Without Remorse. Stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guests, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're putting serial killers and the psychologist who treated them on the couch. Um, Dr. Von DePelto is, is regaling us with all kinds of... <laughs> Fascinating, although some gritty um, stories about the uh, famous serial killers who she uh, managed to keep from killing themselves. Um, you, you know, you were successful in what you were hired thank, to thank do. Thank goodness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Otherwise, I would have been out of, out of there. So what was the, um, besides the pudding episode, what was another um, frightening episode that you had? Um, Douglas Clark, um, he's the the man who cut off women's heads 
and then Douglas kept them in his fridge, had his girlfriend take the heads out and put makeup on them, and then he did um, um, uh, sexual kind of weird stuff with the heads. And one day I decided that we needed a diversion, so I suggested to the staff we have a Halloween party, which we did. Uh, you'll see a picture on my website. It's cute. Anyway, we went by Douglas Clark's cell, and Douglas Clark looked out. His his cell was on the second floor, and it had it's a, a metal door with just a, a window one foot by one foot. He looked out. He pressed his face against the window, looked out, cupped his hands under his chin, and I could just envision him seeing my head on the platter. Yes, and this is when you were trick-or-treating. You were, or, well, not so much the tricking, but the offering the inmates. The treating. Yes. Yeah. Offering yes. them candy and cigarettes. Right? Yes. We went, uh, several of us staff members dressed up in costumes. I went as Jack B. Nimble in a red and white striped <laughs> you thought that was <laughs> You thought that was relatively harmless? <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> and I thought, you know, again, how crazy I was to, to do this. But I, it was, again, it was self-preservation, trying to survey, survive in a horrible place. Anyway, it wasn't so frightening what Douglas did, but it was just um, chilling, to have him see my head on a platter. Yes. Now, there was also, you also um, dealt with uh, porn star Johnny Wad Holmes. What what was that Oh, yes. Um, He was absolutely my favorite. Uh, One day I was down and I was um, interviewing Arthur Jackson. He's the man, I believe from Scotland, who tried to kill Teresa Saldana. And I had gone down and interviewed him, and when I finished interviewing him, I came walking back out into the main module down in that area. And John Holmes, uh, the porn star, and Angela Buono, the hillside strangler, had just come back from court and were being strip-searched. So when I stepped out of the, the little area, the little office, these two men were bending over, and the deputy was snapping on his rubber gloves. And I thought, now, Vonda, a nice girl wouldn't go out there. Mm-hmm. And then I said, what the hell? I'm not a nice girl anymore, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go out and have a look at John. So I waited until the deputy stopped, finished the the search, and then I went out, and I stood. John was is 13 and a half inches long. My husband laughed and said that had I been any closer to him, <laughs> with him naked, I would have been pregnant. <laughs> my my husband's big boast also is that by darn, um, um, you know, she saw all of John, but she still married me. <laughs> Later on, John was on a hunger strike, and he was placed in the hospital, which was up on my floor, up on the second floor. And he came down to my office and came in and had a seat and said, Oh, Doc, I'm dreaming of food every night. He said, I'm I'm really having a hard time. And he said, If you could get a Cadbury candy bar for me, I'll marry you. 
And I thought, what the hell? You know, what can they do to me? I'm already in jail. (laughs) So the next day I called him down to my office and gave him two Cadbury candy bars rolled up in a magazine. (laughs) So he proposed. And so now my husband says, see, he proposed to her, but she married me. (laughs) You know, it's so funny that now you're able to tell all these things because really, I mean, what can they do to you at this point. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, I think one of the things, so one time I was frightened when I had the trash bag murder and um, Ken Bianchi in my office, the Hillside Strangler, and they were both, they got into a big argument about what women should wear and their makeup, and they were, I was afraid they were going to come to blows. And my office was so tiny, I thought, I don't believe that ever hit me on purpose, but I think that they could flail around and hit me. And, of course, there were no deputies around. The deputies were always down at the nurse's station having coffee. And so I didn't even know if I, if I yelled for help. So I finally stood up and said, okay, you guys, get out of my office. And I was amazed at myself that I was able to throw these two killers out. <laughs> when we walked out and John um, Ken Bianchi put his hand on my shoulder and said, Oh, Doc, don't worry. Uh, I'd never let anything happen to you. Well, you know, yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you. And we're kind of coming down to the last uh, few minutes here. But it seems almost as though there was, you know, the saying, honor amongst thieves. Yeah. That it was like um, they were trying to protect you from each other. Uh-huh. They were. Yeah, they were They were very good to me. The, I much preferred ser- seeing the serial killers over the psychotics. Psychotics are extremely unpredictable mm-hmm. because they hear voices telling them to do things. But the serial killers were very much gentlemen with me. Uh, They would compliment me on my hairdo or um, a new dress, and they notice everything, of course. Mm -hmm. But they were uh, very nice. Of course, one of the reasons they were is that I could get them out of their cells, get them hot coffee, and get them cookies. Mm. So, again, this manipulation of sociopaths. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, now that this book has come out, um, have you had any, has anybody tried to contact you? Are any of these killers still around somewhere or their family? Have you had any frightening experience because of the book? No, thank goodness. Uh, I am still, I still correspond with two of the uh, freeway killers. In fact, they're going to be in my next book. Um, (laughs) They're up at Mule Creek Prison. (laughs) Well, and and you can have it be sort of up to the date as well. Well, I hear the music, so Uh let's be sure to let people know where they can get the book. Okay, you can get it at Amazon.com. Uh, just don't get Clancy's book. Mine is Pelto. And um, Barnes & Noble or Borders, probably almost any of the big bookstores would order it for you. Okay, and again, the book is Without Remorse, the story of the woman who, the story of the woman who kept the L.A. serial killers alive. And oh, and go to my website, VondaPelto.com. Yes, and there are pictures and letters from the killers there. 
Yes, and that's V-O-N-D-A, Pelto, P-E-L-T-O. That's VondaPelto.com. So, <laughs> Vonda, thank you very much for uh, sharing, being so brutally honest. You know, that's that's... Uh, that just makes the stories come alive and make you human as well. So thank you very much for joining me and joining us and telling your story to all of us today on Dr. Carol's Couch, and I wish you all kinds of good luck with your book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it being on. You're welcome, and thank you all for listening. Um, sure that uh, this will give you water-cooler conversation for the rest of the day and tomorrow <laughs> and, and beyond that. So thank you all for listening. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.